Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the MTG Goldfish Podcast, episode 41. As always, accompanied by Richard and Seth. Gentlemen, how are you? Richard, what's up? Going well. Seth, how's it going? Doing good, guys. Doing good. Yeah, so on the docket for this cast, we are going to talk about uh, Quebec. Uh, so that was that was a pretty big uh, Grand Prix over the weekend. Hopefully you guys get to, got to watch that. Uh, it was pretty interesting. We got a couple of different decks to talk about. Uh, so we're going to talk about it briefly. Mainly just a, just a couple little changes than what we've been used to since Pro Tour. Uh, we're going to talk about... Uh, a topic that we wanted to cover uh, this cast, uh, Seth wrote an article on the website uh, highlighting uh, Battle for Zendikar and the uh, theory behind, uh, you know, this always kind of happens that, you know, maybe these sets aren't as impactful. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, we also have, we wanted to tackle this uh, topic going around social media and uh, quite frankly, something that I've now been hearing in uh, you know, as I've gone to play out in local game stores that, you know, the price of standard and really where we are with that. And I, I kind of wanted to bring us back down memory lane and say this is not the first time uh, standard has been uh, costly. But we're going to talk a, b- a little bit more about that uh, in a, here in a few minutes. Uh, we have a fish mail. We're going to talk finance. So all the uh, stuff you guys are accustomed to. So. Let me start off. We're going to talk about uh, GP Quebec, and Richard's going to talk to us about the uh, Legacy Open in St. Louis with the awesome top eight of Reliquary Retreat. Uh, So uh, what did you guys think about GP Quebec? Richard? I watched Zero Magic this weekend, so (laughs) I am just looking at deck lists. (laughs) <laughs> okay. I got for you guys. All I'm right. watching League of Legends. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Richard with uh, nine, close to zero input. <laughs> but uh, uh, Seth, did you did you get to uh, watch uh, any of uh, GP Quebec? Well, here's the thing. There was also a big Legacy tournament, and if you give me the option between yeah. watching Standard <laughs> and watching Legacy, I'm picking Legacy every time. All right. Uh, so, so, yeah. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so mainly what I wanted to talk about uh, from this uh, GP, congrats to uh, Daniel Lanthier for taking first place. Uh, so... We had a Sultai Aristocrat sighting by Pascal Maynard, but um, Jake Mundello, we see a red-green Eldrazi deck, and it's a ramp deck, so that's really cool because we talked about this last cast that they were harping on the fact that they've been testing Ulamog and these ramp decks internally, and they were kind of surprised that there wasn't any of this uh, at the Pro Tour, but here we are, there's a ramp deck. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this? Is this something that is going to maybe start creeping up a lot more, or is this maybe something that was just a one-time thing? Well, I actually have a question. Since Did you actually get to see this on camera? I, I didn't really watch too much of uh, Quebec, so I didn't see this deck in particular. Oh, well, my general comment was it looks like a sweet ramp deck, right? You're just, yeah. you're just ramping, and it kind of reminds me of the Titan era 
But uh, here yeah. you're ramping into a Infernal Titan in Dragon Lord Atarka. But how does this deck beat a control deck? Because what if they just sit there, let you ramp, and then they just counter your Dragon Lord Atarka? Is it good game? And even if you cast an Ulamog, you exile two lands, no biggie. So like, how, how does this actually beat a control deck? I can see how it can destroy aggro decks, but uh, it doesn't have kind of the... Uh, like run the last troll kind of things to like right. get around control decks, or at least it's not obvious to me. I guess Whisperwood Elemental would be one of those. So I'm actually really curious how the control deck works. I guess it has Nissa, which uh, if you flip Nissa, then you you got a pretty good game going against control. Right. Well, you have Nissa, you have Ugin, four copies of Ugin. You have Hangerback Walker, which kind of puts a little bit of pressure on them. But yeah, uh, Richard, you make a good point. And and Reed Duke got. Uh, made it to the top eight with Esper Control, so I don't know how the pairings actually went, but I'm assuming he was just hoping not to play Reed Duke because that looks like it would have been a loss. Uh, but so I don't know if they they actually played. So if anyone wants to correct, uh, go right ahead. Um, I did not watch a lot of the top eight, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's always that kind of, like, rock, paper, scissors kind of thing. This beats all the mid-range and kind of aggro decks, and then control kind of beats this. So I don't really know how good of a game it has against control. My my guess is, along what you're saying, Richard, is it's not very good. Uh, so I don't know. Um, I think the, the pilot of this was kind of banking on the fact that – and you, you had the – you can refer to the numbers. We talked to the, about the Pro Tour. Um, Seth, wasn't Control not really that well um, represented in the Pro Tour? Uh, well, Control wasn't extremely heavily played, although Esper Control, non-Dragon Esper Control, was one of the better performing decks. So it wasn't among the most played decks, but it did do well uh, for the people who played it. Right, so maybe they were just kind of banking on the fact that there wasn't that many actually played, but uh, two Esper Control decks did actually make uh, top 32. So you're right, they're not played often, but when but they do well enough. So I don't know. It's just interesting to see Red Green Eldrazi finally pop up because uh, we've all been kind of talking about where's the, the Eldrazi ramp deck that they've been pushing so hard and testing good eternal, uh, internally, quote-unquote. Well, here you go. Um, and it's just interesting because uh, it really leaned on a spell ramp rather than creatures. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I have to say, I ran into a deck a couple times really similar, similar to this on Magic Online in the past few days, and one card that really, really impressed me was Sanctum of Ugin. I completely yeah. wrote that card off when it was spoiled, but what that card lets you do is, you see they have the four Ugins in there. You cast an Ugin, you immediately sack the Sanctum of Ugin and search up an Ulamog, and then you go Ugin into Ulamog, and that's a pretty big game. Like, that is that is really hard for a lot of decks to beat. I think still control could be a problem, but pretty much anything else isn't going to beat uh, Ulamog or Ugin into Ulamog. So Sanctum right. of Ugin is really key to this deck, and that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and that's kind of what you touched on that. That's probably one of the main deck uh, safety blankets against control. When you have a Sanctum, you know, they can counter it, but at least you get to kind of recycle it and, and get something else, a Ulamog or another Ugin or what have you. So that seems good. 
Um, overall, not. I mean, more of the same. Uh, a lot of Jess Guy Black. Uh, Soltai Aristocrats showed up. Pascal uh, definitely took uh, a page out of uh, Christian Calcano and kind of Gabriel Nassif, and I think we see like a fusion of the two tech lists. Um, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen uh, Gabriel Nassif stream uh, uh, gra- Green Black Aristocrats, should probably go watch it. It was really good. Um, I just so yeah, this is. I just have a comment about this deck. Like everyone and their mother is playing aristocrats. I don't know why, but like F and M, it's just like every single person is playing aristocrats. When I play online, like so many aristocrats. Like yeah, people love playing janky creatures and sacking (laughs) for value. Apparently, Uh, it's it's just everywhere. It's it's crazy how popular this deck is, even though it's not that uh, well represented in top eights of big tournaments. Yeah, I mean it, it's fun. So I and I get and it's relatively cheap. Well, not the uh, blue versions with Jace, obviously, but uh, so maybe that's just kind of why people lean on it and, and play it. I mean, it is fun. So that's always I, a fact. I love that it's just casually splashing the double white rally the ancestors. Like the only <laughs> yeah. one, only white card in the deck. Sure, why not? Double white, no problem. <laughs> hey, I mean when you got fetch lands and duels pretty much uh in in standard i mean why not whoa it's playing yeah. evolving wilds that's that's when you know you have some serious meta issues when you need to play four <laughs> evolving wilds as a yeah. three color three color fetch land there yeah <laughs> or four color going, I guess. <laughs> going real deep on that um richard so let's transition a little bit because you know not really much else to say on quebec um but there is some to say on the legacy open in St. Louis. So walk us through that a little bit. Uh, you took notice to the uh, Knight of the Reliquary and Retreat to Coral Helm combo finally showing up. Everyone kind of thought it would show up in Modern first, but here we see it in Legacy. So I was really surprised. Yeah, so I, I didn't watch this either. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I saw the results. I'm like, Tom Ross won. Okay, what else is new? Uh, but the fourth place list was a Reliquary Retreat deck. So uh, it it looks to me like a green-white Maverick deck, uh, which is basically some Mana Dorks, uh, Night of the Reliquary, and the Land Toolkit. And then it has a whole bunch of blue in it. Uh, Force of Will, Dazes, Jaces, Vendillion Clicks, and then the combo card Retreat to Coral Helm. So basically you get a Night Out, a Retreat to Coral Helm, and you can just go through your entire deck uh, with those two cards. Um, how well it performed? I don't know. I'll ask Seth that because Seth probably actually saw this in action. Did it look good on camera, Seth? It, the matches I saw on camera, it looked really sweet. Like the thing is with this deck is it really is an instant win combo. If you can get a retreat on the battlefield and untap with a knight, you make the knight lethal by sacking your lands. Every time a land enters the battlefield, you get to untap knight, and eventually you end that chain by searching out a Sajiri Steep or a Kessig Wolf Run, which lets your knight either get protection and swing through a blocker or gives it trample to trample over some lingering souls tokens or whatever. So it is pretty scary that the deck can just randomly win and it has the counter spell backup for its uh, combo. You can pitch extra retreats to Force of Will. Um, and you even get to scry. You get almost like a Sensei's Divining Top action 
with the retreat uh, looking to find your green sun zenith or to find your knight. So the synergy of the deck is pretty impressive, and I didn't see its loss in the top eight, but I saw it throughout the day, and I was always really impressed. It took down Reanimator really easily because it could search up Crocus whenever it needed to or search up uh, the Exile um, Graveyard Land out of the sideboard. Uh, Bajookabog. The Bajookabog, yeah. So it does have a lot more answers than you would think, so I was pretty impressed by it. Yeah, um... Again, I, I always really kind of thought this would show up in Modern more uh, before, or even not ever really showing up in Legacy, but, I mean, here we are. I mean, like you said, Richard, this is kind of a green-white Maverick list that adopted blue and just kind of functions as a uh, Maverick list with a combo finish. So it's really interesting, and... um you know, I don't know, what's what would you think is the future of a deck like this? I mean, it did well once, obviously, you know, it's just one legacy open, but, um, I mean, it really was strong. Yeah, so the, the question is, will Knight of the Reliquary become a pillar of legacy? Because currently it's not. Um, the, the value creature slot is currently sitting with Stoneforge Mystic. Um, so, you know, in legacy, you have a few options for creatures to end the game. So right now you have Tarmogoyf, you have Stoneforge Mystic, you have Delver. And Night of the Reliquary has always kind of been there. You get like the awesome toolkit for your lands, but uh, you didn't have much game against uh, combo decks. And there wasn't really a reason to play blue. Uh, now there's a reason to play blue with that, right? And that's Retreat to Coral Helm, which gives you kind of that instant win ability. So maybe this is what... Uh, Knight needed to become a Pillar of Legacy because it's always been one of those really powerful cards but there's never a real reason to play it. Uh, you had other options but now you have an instant win combo so maybe it's kind of the Splinter Twin uh, of Legacy where you know I can grind you out but uh, if you're not careful I'll just randomly combo you. Uh, so I yeah. think that could happen. I mean it's a very powerful card, right? Like just Knight like Green Sun Zenith and Knight of the Reliquary is a very powerful engine. Uh, you know, I would say it's just as powerful as Stoneforge and Equipment. Uh, the, the problem is Stoneforge needs nothing else, right? You just put Stoneforge Mystic in your deck three Equipment and you're good. That's seven slots. Whereas Knight, you need, like, a lot with your lands and uh, you probably need Green Sun Zenith as well. So uh, Knight just requires more slots in your deck. I don't know, Blue Maverick? I, I don't know what this is. Uh, we'll, we'll call it Reliquary Retreat. But I, I can see it sticking around and... Uh, it bodes well for Knight of the Reliquary. I, I think it can only get better as they print more lands and more cards to uh, synergize with the the Knight's tapping ability. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said, Richard. I, it, this, this definitely seems like a really good way to um, adopt another kind of out for the green-white Maverick decks, which which have kind of hung around in Legacy, but they haven't really been as strong as they used to be, right, Richard? With, like, all... With the dominance of just so many other cards, it kind of just pushed out, like, fair decks. So, uh, adopting a combo and blue uh, to kind of... Like, like you said, either grind them out or just, if they're not careful, you get to combo them out. Uh, maybe that's enough to keep uh, these new... Um, to keep these new kind of Maverick decks uh, around and, and relevant in, in Legacy. So, uh, 
moving on, uh, just so just so um, we kind of keep things rolling here. Um, Seth, you wrote an article on the website this week. Uh, so so kind of talk us through a little bit about that because I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And I think it, this goes in tandem of what we are going to talk about in terms of why standard is so expensive right now. Uh, so I kind of wanted to talk about these two topics uh, together. All right. So Battle for Zendikar has been kind of a contentious set in the community. Uh, when it was spoiled, a lot of people thought this set wasn't very good, wasn't very powerful. Uh, other people said, no, it just looks bad. Wait till it sees play. This is just how it goes. So I wanted to do a little research and see whether or not it's true that new sets don't usually see play right away. So basically what I did is went back through the last five sets. So going from Battle for Zendikar all the way back to Innistrad and broke down either the fall pro tour right after they released, or in some cases that pro tour was modern. So we had to talk about the first big GP, like after the set released to see how many cards from the newest set actually show up in the top eights of these tournaments. And what I discovered is just looking at the data battle for Zendikar is a very unimpactful set. Uh, just going with the, just briefly, the, the latest three sets, we had Cons of Tarkir. Cons of Tarkir at its pro tour, 44% of the cards in the top eight were from Cons of Tarkir. Go back to Theros, 39% of the cards at pro tour, tour Theros were from Theros. Battle for Zendikar, 9% of the cards in the top eight were from Battle for Zendikar. So the idea that sets just don't see play right away and it takes a little while for people to figure out where to put these cards doesn't necessarily hold water if you look back and compare Battle for Zendikar to other sets. Yeah, uh, and I'm really liking, like, it's kind of funny how people kind of perceive this and they always kind of, and largely myself, I kind of taken a step back just to see and evaluate what Battle for Zendikar can actually do, because I didn't want to, I don't want to be one of those players, and there are a lot of them in this community that will totally disparage a set before they actually see uh, the cards, and we we've kind of seen that in Dragons of Tarkir. We saw that a little bit of Origins, kind of writing off, uh, you know, a few few cards that ended up really being a, a pillar of standard. So I didn't want to like jump the gun and say, oh, Battle for Zendikar is really bad, and I still don't really think it's a bad set. Um, when you look at it, but everyone wants to always say, oh, well, you know, Battle for Zendikar is paired with Khans, and Khans is a really powerful block. Well, I think you kind of answered that question in your article, Seth, because, I mean, Innistrad was released, and it had to contend with a fully functioning, finished three-set block, and Innistrad... You know, you, you look at Innistrad, you look at even Theros, I mean, they brought a lot to the table just from one set. And and the big thing I'm, I'm a stickler about is this new block cadence, right? And maybe, you know, we have talked about this in previous casts, um, Richard and, and yourself has, have stated, you know, and, and I agree, there is kind of this remnants of the old block cadence, and we're kind of looking at this, like, very perfect uh, storm kind of feeling where... Everything's kind of centered around cons because of the fetch lands and all that. Maybe that'll go away once cons goes away. And, and I'm sure it will. 
but I think once that's gone, I mean, we're still left with Battle for Zendikar and presumably oh, the, gate, the Gate Watch that's going to build on that. And we just still don't have, like, a very impactful set. I mean, how good are the uh, Battlelands going to be without fetches? So I, I don't know. It's just the, the point I'm really trying to make is that with this new blockade, I'm expecting not a hugely powerful set. Like, I'm not expecting Geist of St. Trapped, Liliana the Veil, vale, uh, Delver, and all this stuff packed into one set like Innistrad. But I am expecting, now that they're focusing just on two blocks a set, that each set kind of brings a, a lot to the table uh, once these sets do come out, because they don't have that kind of third set to always worry about. So I kind of wanted to discuss that a little bit. And um, that'll lead us to also uh, the price of standard and, you know, historically what we've we've seen. So, Richard, go ahead. Yeah, so my thoughts are, I mean, I obviously agree with uh, the points that Seth made in the article. I mean, it's it's data. Um, but, like, I'm asking, like, what do players actually want of standard, right? Like, people are complaining that, you know, there's not enough powerful cards. You know, lightning strike is gone. I want lightning bolt. And my, my question is why? Right? Like, you, you can't have the most powerful yeah. cards in Standard. Like, just go play Legacy or Modern or Vintage. Right? So I don't like that argument of it's weak. Like, you know, once Cons rotates out and Battle for Zendikar is on its own, will people still complain it's too weak? Um, power level is relative, right? It'll be the most powerful set because it's the only set there. Right. So I think that's fine. The The other argument which I have more sympathy for is the format's not fresh. Right, because the cards are so weak, it didn't uh, shake up the format, and you're playing with basically cons of Tarkir block decks. And the only reason I play standard is I want a fast evolving metagame that gets changed every couple of months, right? And that did not happen with Battle for Zendikar, right? We're seeing the same decks play out uh, over and over again, and even though there are lots of archetypes and it looks very balanced and very fun, uh, it's not new. And I think that's where a lot of players are justified in their complaints. Uh, you know, they expected a brand new format with, I don't know, Eldrazi and allies and whatnot, and here we are slinging Siege Rhinos against Mantis Riders. Yeah. Um, so I can agree with that argument, and that that kind of makes me not want to play Standard. You know, it's not fresh. You know, nothing's changed from five months ago, so I'll just continue playing, you know, Legacy, where I play my same deck for two years. Like, I don't want Standard to have that same feeling, right? I want to play a deck for three weeks and then have it become, quote-unquote, obsolete as the metagame evolves and new sets are released. Um, but I think that's not happening this time around, which is why people are starting to look around and kind of blaming Battle for Zendikar and its power level uh, for that symptom. Yeah. Uh, Seth? You made really good points, Richard, by the way, so... Yeah, go ahead, Seth. Yeah, and well, before I get into it, I just wanted to point out, just so it's clear to everyone, this isn't talking, this article isn't talking about the long-term playability of Battle for Zendikar. This is purely how much impact a set has immediately after it's released. So it's yep. very possible that six months from now, when things rotate, Battle for Zendikar is going to be seeing way more play than it is now. Like Richard said, that's likely. So just just so that's clear... But one thing that stood out to me, like one of my conclusions, I guess, I came to as I was writing this article is that part of the problem is, again, we've been harping on this, but the mechanics of Battle for Zendikar and how they don't interact well with the rest of Standard. 
And that made me wonder, I'd like to get your guys' opinions on this. We're moving to this new two-set block um, standard. And traditionally, in a set, we have three blocks. In Wizards, even if the same mechanic isn't in all three sets of the block, the mechanics from the block work together. So by the end of the block, you get to the third set, and stuff that may not have been a real deck when the first set released, by the time the third set comes around, gets more cards and more cards and can actually be a deck. Like, what does this new two-set block structure do to Eldrazi or allies? Like, they're not going to get that third set of support, theoretically, to this spring be able to look forward to a competitive Eldrazi deck or a competitive ally deck because they only get two sets instead of three. Like, is that a, con- right. is that a concern that overall the power level of standard is going to get lower because we don't have as much synergy uh, between the sets? Well, I think Richard, let let me go back to what Richard said uh, before I answer your question, Seth. Uh, Richard, you made a great point about um, standards should not be like as powerful as modern or legacy and stuff like that. And you shouldn't be, you know, wanting to, you know, you shouldn't be thinking like you're going to get stuff like lightning bolt and, you know, all this really powerful stuff in standard. And, And it has happened in the past and I understand that. But I think what's going on is that in this kind of transitional phase, they're kind of trying to hit the reset button. But in doing so, like, they can't get rid of, you know, they can't get rid of cons, and they can't get rid of stuff that's still lingering around from the old kind of way they've been doing things. And I think that's resonating in a big way because, like you said, Seth, you know, cons is, and Richard, cons is, like, what we're playing. It's Siege Rhino versus Mantis Rider, and Battle for Zendikar is just, you know, they're providing lands pretty much, and Gideon, I guess. Uh, So until this kind of goes the way they've been planning, and I really hope, I mean, I would have to think they've been testing internally and they kind of know that this maybe this phase is just going to have to happen in order for them to move on, uh, because it would be a really huge oversight if, um, you know, maybe Battle for Zendikar wasn't supposed to be playing well with cons. Or maybe it was because it had these lands. But I think really what they were looking for is, to answer your question, Seth, I think Battle for Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch are supposed to be designed for future sets. And I think maybe they had to kind of scatter those lands in there just so, you know, while Cons is kind of lingering around, it's it's interesting to play standard or what have you, or I don't know, because um, that's just how things are going to go for a little while. Uh, so... Losing a third set is always going to be a little weird because we've been used to it for so long. And like you said, they kind of round things out in every block with that third set. Even if it's a bad set, it adds just enough cards for the first two sets uh, to kind of come together and become decks. So I think really what's going to happen is the first set's going to establish what's going on. And then the second set just builds off that. And that's really it. I mean, maybe there's not going to be a viable Eldrazi deck or a super viable allies deck. Maybe there's just enough that you use some of them and then the cards like, you know, these ramp spells or something like that to, you know, power out an Ulamog or a new Emrakul or whatever they, Emrakul or whatever they, uh, you know, decide to print Oath of the Gatewatch. So that's my thought. I mean, I'm not part of R&D. I'm not part of this, you know, internal secret testing league or you know, whatever they decide to do. So that's just kind of 
you know, that's some of the, that's the trend I'm noticing is that, you know, with, they're not able to get out of that old cadence yet. And there's going to be that overlap that is where we're sitting at right now. Yeah. And just to uh, expand on Seth's point, like, I, I think it wasn't working before the way they did the mechanics, which is why they went to this two block cadence. Like, I think the yeah. mechanics is actually the literal reason why they're going to this new cadence. And if you recall, the third set always has weird random mechanics that don't fit the first two. Right. Usually the first two sets have uh, the same mechanics and the third set has something new. Like Avicen Restored uh, has miracles, which didn't show up in the first two blocks or the first two sets of the block. Yeah. Uh, so I think they wanted to alleviate that. And that's why they moved to the two set. So I, I think that's precisely why they wanted to do it. And kind of what Chaz said, like they probably knew this would be weird. This is kind of the, transi- the transition set. So they probably said, this is going to be weird. We better give them some expeditions or something to make up for it. And then hopefully going forward, <laughs> it's more smooth. But my guess is they knew that this this was going to be weird because this is kind of the transition point. So uh, once we get past this, hopefully everything is smooth and uh, it, it comes back to kind of the, the freshness that, that we expect in the sets. I guess another thing I'll be interested to see, they've talked a lot recently about how, as far as flavor and story, there's going to be a connection between blocks. Like, just because Battle for Zendikar ends doesn't mean the story that started with Battle for Zendikar is ending. So it's, I guess it's possible that there'll be more synergy between blocks as far as mechanical stuff, too, as we get going along with this new two-set block cadence. So, Yeah. Which kind of leads us into the price of standard, and that's a really big topic right now because whenever standard is expensive, people tend to, you know, maybe this is like kind of compounding what we've been talking about. Why Battle for Zendikar didn't really, uh, you know, why has Battle for Zendikar not really given us that much stuff? And, you know, standard is so expensive right now. We just want like cons to leave and all this and origins and all that. I don't want to pay $400 for Jace and all that. And I get that. But let's not forget, like, this is not the first time Standard has been expensive, okay? Like, I, just to uh, – I did a little research before we came on cast, and I couldn't really get the uh, full numbers of the original Caw Blade. I'd have to ask around uh, because I think I was just getting – you know, the prices that were getting spit out to me, I think were just this, uh, like, right now prices. But what I do know for sure is that uh, – and I and I kind of found this that Jace was hovering around eighty to hundred dollars back then. And in order to have Cobblade, you basically needed three to four Jaces. So that's almost four hundred dollars right off the bat that you had to play that you had to pay to play Cobblade. And that's basically what Standard was. It was a lot of Cobblade, and then uh, the meta evolved into this kind of weird state of like these weird Cobblade lists that were just beating other Cobblade lists. So it was. It was weird, and we don't want to go back to that time, and I think they've done a good job of keeping it diverse, I mean, but that sometimes means that prices are going to be high. And I pulled this uh, two years ago, and I talked this over with uh, you, and or Seth and you, Richard, uh, when we were off cast that uh, Pro Tour Gate Crash, so this is just two years ago, um, there's about 15 lists, and we're looking at the prices, so Saito Naya... $800, close to $800. Jun Midrange, close to $800. 
Bank Control would, was running you 550. Uh, American Tempo was giving you uh, running you 600. John Midrange 650. So I mean, there was a lot of different deck lists at very like it was expensive back then. I mean, you had you didn't have a Jace Vrinz Prodigy card, and and I understand that it. It wasn't like a $70 card that everyone could talk about. There, but there was plenty of $35 cards that you needed to play standard. You know, Thrag Tusk, $20, um, Bonfire of the Dam, 35 and so on and so forth. So um, I just – how are you guys reacting to this? Because I've now even heard this more even at local gaming stores that, you know, it is really expensive. People don't want to pay for Jace. And, you know, people who are maybe not have – played very long, don't want to buy all these fetch lands, but um, one of the points I also want to bring up is, and and you kind of alluded to this off-cast, Seth, is that you're paying for stuff that's also going to be played in other formats as the kind of one good point of all this. So, uh, Richard, go ahead. Yeah, we've had st- uh, expensive standard decks. Like, that. that is given, right? And especially at the Pro Tour time when uh, cards are at their crazy values, uh, that's not surprising. But I think the, the crux of the argument is it's, it's just not good for the game, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's better that the money is tied up in fetch lands and at least they hold value after rotation. But at the end of the day, like, you have to fork over $700 to play a deck, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we always hear the argument, well, you know, if you bought your fetch lands when they were low... Uh, you know, that, that's not a problem. You could have had them for $10. And, you know, if I bought my Black Lotus when it was $200, I could play Vintage <laughs> as well, right? Like that, that doesn't yeah. help the new player who shows up at their local game store and, you know, says, I want to play Magic. And they sit down and they play their $30 event deck versus a $700 deck across the table, right? Like, the yeah. gap is huge to become competitive. And, you know, I was just actually looking at buying a PS4 this weekend. I can buy a PS4 and like six games, right? Or I can buy a standard deck, right? So the the value proposition, I think, is a problem, right? For us, it's not so much because we've been playing Magic a long time. We're used to spending five, six hundred dollars on decks. You know, another hundred or two hundred is not a big deal. But for a new player, a seven hundred dollar deck is ridiculous, right? It's like pieces of cardboard. Like, what are you guys doing, right? So. I think that's where it's bad for the game. The new players, the barrier for entry and kind of getting new blood into the community uh, suffers because of this. So I think that's the problem, not for the established players who could switch to modern, who could spend the extra $100 to buy whatever, who can invest in a play set of fetches because they're going to last forever. That's not too big of a deal, but the new players really, really get the short end of the stick here. Yeah, and you're mainly just talking about standard. Like, Comparing a an eight hundred dollar standard deck and a you know two thousand dollar legacy deck isn't quite the same thing because you know it is legacy and you're kind of that's you know legacy is not tailored to the new uh, player. Yeah, and you can always the the more comparison uh, the more common comparison I see is modern and standard. Like we we've seen threads on Reddit where you know these are the ten modern decks you could buy for less than just Kai Black. Right. And, I think those are actually valid arguments, right? Like, there, there is a valid argument to just buying a modern deck now, right? Like, it's the same price. Uh, but for new players, the, the first format they'll most likely play is standard, right? And they probably don't want to play modern. Like, you, the amount of knowledge you need just to know about the entire card pool in modern is ridiculous. 
right? Yeah. So uh, for new players, standard is where they start, and having standard be kind of as expensive as your your kind of second premier format in modern is is a bit weird. Yeah. Uh, Seth? Yeah, I agree with Richard. I think what's missing is normally in Magic, we kind of have a hierarchy of formats where, as Richard was saying, standard is supposed to be this accessible format that anyone can jump into at any point. Like, if you're a new player, you've been playing Duels of the Planeswalkers, maybe dabbling on Magic Online, you decide you want to get into the paper game, you can go and spend not that much money and start playing FNMs and even start playing open series events and things like that. That's what standard is supposed to be, and that's not what standard is right now. Uh, so we're supposed to buy into standard. That's for everyone. Then some of those people will eventually build up a collection over years or invest more and get into modern, and then fewer still will do the same thing for legacy. So that's how it's supposed to work, but the fact that standard is more expensive or comparably expensive to modern right now throws that whole system out of whack. Because, uh, as Richard said, you can't really tell a new player, oh, just buy a modern deck. Like, I know that makes financial sense and value sense, but it just won't work. How long is a new player going to last when they, their first games of Magic are against Bloom Titan and against Blood, Blood <laughs> Moon? Like, they're going to say, what the is this game? And just give it up and stop playing altogether. Like, so uh, I think that this is a problem. At the same time, it's a short-term problem. That's what I keep coming back to every time we talk about this. I really don't think that this is the new normal. I think this is the perfect storm of Jace being way out of control and being played in more than half of the decks combined with a fetch land for slow land mana base. So I, I think once we get to rotation, things will be more normal uh, as far as prices. So, but what do you do in the meantime? Like, what do you do for this winter when a new player says, hey, I really want to play Magic? Like, what, what answer do I give them? I don't know. But Don't play standard. <laughs> I, I have a counterpoint to that, though. You say it's um, the perfect storm, but is the perfect storm not happening every set now? The, the reason why this is happening is people are saying, hey, these modern slash legacy staples are too expensive. Please put them in standard legal sets. Right, we saw it with Thoughtseize, we saw it with Shocklands, we saw it with, uh, we're seeing it with Fetchlands. So Wizards is saying, hey, yeah, let's just put them in Standard, and then the price of Standard goes up because these cards are so expensive, right? Yeah, so, I, so Standard players are subsidizing Modern players at this point, right? Like, well, yeah, it, it does get expensive as Standard goes on, but you have to remember, you know, even if they're putting Modern stuff in a Standard. You know, we, we talked about this, like this block cadence is supposed to kind of speed things up, you know. Cards aren't going to be in standard for as long a time. So they're not going to reach, like, I mean, Thoughtseize at one point was like, you know, what, 12 bucks? Something like that. So, and, and that was in the old cadence. So you can imagine, like, cards are just not going to retain a lot of value as standard keeps rotating. And I think that's really what they're trying to get to is that... um you know, stores and, and buy lists and, you know, the, the turnover period of standard isn't going to be as expensive because, you know, the cards aren't going to be in standard as long. So they're never going to reach these kind of crazy heights of, you know, $45. Now, is that going to really happen in a real life setting? Maybe, maybe not. You know, is Gideon, I mean, Gideon's still going to be Gideon. So, 
you know, even when Khans is gone and another set comes out and there's a new, you know, as powerful Planeswalker as Gideon, you know, people are still going to want it. So, you know, maybe it's still going to be expensive, maybe. But I just don't think it's going to be, you know, as big of a barrier. Maybe that's kind of where they're getting to. Another thing you brought up, Richard, and it's very important, and a part of this discussion is, you know, and I and I open it to you guys um, with the premise that you know there has been expensive standards in the past, but then and this was the huge caveat, and you hinted at this, Richard, big time. There wasn't an established format like modern back then, and there wasn't a huge alternative. And I think that's really the important crux of this argument now. Of this standard is so expensive because we've seen expensive standards in the past, but it's so compounded now is because we have an established eternal, I guess you want to call it format and modern, which is comparable to standard. And it just doesn't look good. Um, back then they had extended and extended wasn't, I mean, it was kind of popular, but it really wasn't highlighted as it, you know, modern is now they really turned their attention to modern. They, they kind of didn't do that in the past with extended. I mean, you can make the argument, but whatever, but yeah, I, I think the real huge, part of this problem now is just modern is now comparable to standard and that's probably wrong. So um, I, I think that's where people are, you know, the validity of this argument now of this standard being so expensive. Yeah. And remember we're, we're coming off some pretty cheap standards. Uh, cons was yeah. a bit expensive, but uh, return to Ravnica was, uh, or not return to Ravnica, the Theros, the Theros set was actually yeah. really cheap, right? Remember when you can get a mono blue or mono black devotion deck for two hundred dollars? Yeah, right? like that was sweet, right? Like, oh, my land base is twenty swamps, sweet, right? I mean, you had to put four yeah. mutavolts in there, but the deck was literally four mutavolts, four thought seasons, and a bunch of bulk rares and uncommons. Yeah, right? flip it to today where you don't even play basic lands, and like every single <laughs> one of your cards is a mythic or a rare. Yeah, right? and the only thing saving it today is a bunch of these cards are in event decks, right? <laughs> like, it's it's really weird, right? We we also had um, the old uh, mono red sly that just played four Stoke to Flames, and that was your most expensive card in the deck. So mm -hmm. we had some really cheap, affordable, competitive decks. So that that's kind of compounding the problem where you know standard players today remember the point a year ago where you could buy a deck for a hundred bucks, a hundred fifty bucks. But mm -hmm. now that buys you like two Jaces. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. Well, so that, yeah. that no, kind of stings right. yeah. and, and adds to the problem. The problem really isn't Jace. It's not Gideon. The perfect storm aspect of it for me is the fetch lands. Like, yes, people want powerful reprints. Yes, we want to keep supporting modern. But Thoughtseize isn't going to do this to standard. Getting a reprint like that. Mm -hmm. Mutavault didn't do this to standard. We're in a standard now where you're playing 12 or 13 fetch lands per deck, which is adding 300 plus dollars by themselves. And the fetch lands you have to remember are two or three times more expensive than the shock lands were in standard. And that's the next best land set in modern, the best, uh, next best land cycle. So the perfect storm is we have fetches right now, which are doubling the price of decks. Like if we didn't have fetches in standard, all that other stuff, Jace, Gideon, yes, it would be an annoyance, but it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be talking about this as a major problem. It's the fetch lands that's making it a major problem, 
and we're not going to have fetch lands in standard very often. Like, that's just not something that's going to come up every year or two. So that's why I think this is a perfect storm. One other thing while I'm on the rant, uh, (laughs) (laughs) maybe what this illustrates is something we've mentioned before, but the need for supplemental products, uh, modern Mm -hmm. masters, commander type decks, to be able to put cards directly into modern. Right now, everything going into modern has to go through standard. So for modern to continue being a format, because remember, six months ago, we were talking about how modern increased drastically in price, and we needed more support for modern, or no one would be able to play it. Maybe we need another mechanism for getting cards into modern that aren't going to affect standard prices and standard sets. Absolutely agree. Yeah, we solved this months ago. I don't know what Wizards is doing. <laughs> they they didn't listen to us. We, we we solved this months ago. I remember this conversation. But yeah, we did, yeah. To, to Seth's point, like, they're not going to print enemy fetch lands uh, with the Valpers Endercar fetch lands. We, we've pretty much gotten all those hints. What that means is the next next standard, like two years from now, they're going to be reprinted there, and we're going to have an expensive standard again. Right? So... I, I don't know what this means for the future of Magic, that if, you know, for the next two years, decks are going to be insanely expensive. That's that's not looking too good, right? But what else are they yeah. going to do? Like, Commander is the other place, but we've already concluded that that's just not a good use of resources for Wizards, right? So well, uh, we have another standard coming with more fetch lands, so that's on the horizon. We know that's coming. But how how bad would that be without the battle for Zendikar duels? Because we've had fetch lands in standard for a year now, and it isn't until we got the battle for Zendikar duels that we've seen this huge explosion of prices because decks went from, uh, I'm a blue-white deck, I'm playing four flooded strands, to I'm a four-color deck playing 13 fetch lands. One would presume yeah. if Wizards put fetch lands in a set, there'd be some synergy, right? So then Maybe. there well, would they probably be some motivation to play fetch lands. That that would be my guess. Like you'd yeah, have well, a they... delve like mechanic or something like that. But it's possible yeah. to just say screw it. We'll just put them in here, and there's no actual synergy, so that you don't have to play you know twenty fetches in your deck. Right. I mean, it would still be an annoyance. Um, I don't think it would be too bad. I mean, like you said, Richard, if they're going to print them, obviously there's going to be some incentive. And we did have Delve, but there was, like you said, Seth, a time period where they were fetching like basic lands uh, and stuff like that. And they weren't fetching these uh, these battle duels. And it would be an annoyance, but they were manageable for the past year. Like, Flooded Strand was sitting at like 12 bucks. Uh, Delta, for a while, was like 15 bucks, And that's it wasn't really that bad. It's still... a kind of an annoyance but i do agree and we solved this months ago i don't think i mean they said they were going to reprint aggressively uh these modern staples so modern kind of stays affordable i guess um so they don't completely bar everyone from the from the format but i do think it is they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot too because if they're just using standard as the only way to get these cards back through modern like with more supply I mean, th- then we're always going to have this issue. Um, you did bring up, set that cards like Thoughtseize don't really, you know, make standards so, on a, like, so uh, crazy expensive. It- it's it's the, all the fetch lands, and I-, I think maybe they have to kind of look at what they did and kind of either stick them, you know, and maybe that's, it, it isn't the-, the best use of their resources, but it's just got to happen this way or else, like you said, Richard, you know, we're we're looking at another expensive standard on the horizon. 
So maybe maybe a supplemental product is the way to go, and they did do it with the Clash Pack. They put uh, Heath in there, but, I mean, that's just kind of a Band-Aid, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. What do you uh, – I think I think when, when it comes to, like, fetch lands and, and that kind of reprint equity, you talked about that a lot, uh, Seth, reprint equity. I think you just have to kind of suck it up and just put it in a supplemental product, you know, put an MSRP on it, distribute it to big box stores or whatever, like in a commander product. And then just that's just how you handle those um, kind of reprints because Thoughtseize is okay, but Fetchlands aren't, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think that I agree with that. I think that would be the way to solve the problem of the prices. The thing is, though, I don't know how much that helps for standard. Like, that helps right. That helps for modern, but it's not like windswept teeth is cheap by standard, uh, normal standard prices, even with the reprinting in the Clash Pack. So I think that that would relieve the pressure on modern and maybe mean they don't need to put fetches into standard legal sets. But I still think standard players would be complaining if they put all of the fetch lands in a supplemental product and they were still... a piece that's still a lot if you need 12 or 13 of them to build a tier one deck yeah yeah uh any kind of final thoughts on that uh just just want to balance that the fetch lands aren't actually that expensive by the way we always have these ridiculous 20 dollars standard lands uh when the the first set is no longer being opened Uh, if you remember the innistrad check lands the uh, the fast lands from Scars of Mirrodin, those things were like a dollar or something when they were being opened. But towards the end of their standard lives, they're sitting at fifteen, twenty dollars a piece. Yeah. So the the fetch lands themselves aren't too bad. It's just the problem is you need to play so many of them in your deck, mm-hmm. and then combined with Jace, combined with Gideon and Hanger Back, you have ridiculous prices. But we've always had individually expensive lands in standard. Yeah. All right. So moving along. Um... You know, that that kind of wrapped up a lot of what we were going to talk about in finance um, for this section. But we do have a, a fish mail, so um, we can wrap things up with that and, uh, you know, our finance uh, segment. So go ahead, Richard. What's our fish mail? Uh, J-Hogue at Insul Artifacts. All I need is a playset of Windswept Heath to complete my fetches. Should I wait or get them now? They were $11 a month ago. Um, just wanted to check. So the retail is looking like what, 14 bucks. Yep. I don't know. I mean, they're not even going to drop that much once they rotate, but I mean, at this point you might as well just wait. Yeah. I mean, uh, my advice might be to see if you can seek out those clash packs. Like I would have yeah. to run the math again, but it's possible that you're going to get windswept teeth for very uh, cheap. If you can buy the clash packs, sell or trade off the rest of the high end cards, the Dromoka's commands, the siege rhino, uh, and just keep the windswept teeth out of there. You might get them for a really, really good deal. So I would look into that possibility. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I mean, if you're not playing it in standard, they're they're not going to drop too much, but I think it would be enough to warrant getting them at rotation. I mean, if Heat's the only one, 
I mean, you might as well wait at this point. Uh, but if you really need them to play, I mean, again, they're not going to go down that much. But On the other hand, if you already have the other 16, how much money are you going to lose if you just bite the bullet and pay 55 bucks for a set of heats? Like right. maybe 5 bucks or something? If you were looking to buy all 20 fetch lands, you have a bigger motivation to wait until the absolute low point because that's a significant investment. But if yeah. it's just for windswept heats, I don't think you can really go wrong either way. You might save a little if you wait, but it's not going to be – if you want them, I think you're safe to go ahead and buy them because losing a couple bucks a copy probably isn't uh, going to be a deal breaker for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Richard, what do you think? Uh, I have no further input. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. All right. Guys. So there you go. Um Seth, uh, not too much finance to talk about, but um, let's do it all the same. Uh, anything glaring that we need to talk about? Well, Standard's been pretty quiet this week. Uh, the big winner is Secure the Waste up 30%, Hidden Dragon Slayer up 16%. Everything else is kind of small changes. On the loser side, See the Unwritten, Hardened Scales, Tassiger, and Whisperwood are all down more than 10% this week. So instead of going through the whole list, uh, let's just focus on those big ones as far as standard is concerned. Yeah, and I think um, – so most of the cards that you talked about or that we just named off are Dragons of Tarkir cards in terms of the weekly changes. Um, and I think it's pertinent because Dragons of Tarkir sticks around for another rotation. So obviously um, people that are buying them or you know the price is going up because – um, they're not rotating immediately. Yes, that I mean that's that's a big deal that those cards are safe, and we just saw with this rotation how shakeups in the format make cards that were not that playable, like think of Liliana, for example, all of a sudden into staples or near staples and drive their prices up. So holding cards from Magic Origins and Dragons is not a bad place to be with another rotation coming up this spring. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, price decreases, uh, seems pretty obvious. I mean, see the unwritten at this point is a huge no show in the standard, um, Whisperwood elemental, uh, hardened scales, uh, all these, those were reprinted. So obviously there, we're still seeing the effects of that, um, event deck reprint, uh, you know, in terms of the supply of that. Yeah, that's uh, still driving down prices, and Hardened Scales hasn't really caught on either, kind of along the lines of See the Unwritten, so that's uh, definitely the most notable, uh, noticeable changes. I, why we're on the topic of finance, what is going on with Legacy and Vintage cards, Chaz? What's up with this old school thing? I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um so we all kind of went through – I mean, this is really my only thought on it. I, I, I mean, the issue is even if – and we talked about this uh, a few times already, Seth. Even if a lot of people don't play this format, and we, we've been through kind of these phases of you know tiny leaders and these kind of offshoot formats that aren't the main typical standard – you know, the, these, the main constructed formats. The issue I see, and it's a really big – it's kind of scary, actually, this old-school phenomena. Um, 
you know, people that are playing it, there doesn't need to be that many people to play the format to also drive up prices to obscene amounts. I mean, there's a lot of overlap with the reserved list. There's a lot of these cards that, you know, yeah, they could get reprinted at some point, but I mean, they might not be. I mean, what's really the point? Um, you know, the, the, it's just not a lot of these cards in existence. And again, the overlap with the reserve list. It, I don't know. I mean, really, as soon as someone buys like X amount of them, that's a lot of the overall uh, stock of that card online vendors anyway, just gone. Um, and there's not a lot of them in circulation. It's It's kind of, you know, a little concerning because... You know, we I, I see this over social media a lot, and I'm not going to, you know, point fingers and, you know, say, you know, X persons or person is doing, you know, Y bad thing. But, I mean, I just think we have to be very responsible, especially when it comes to reserve list stuff, that these cards are not – well, a lot of these cards, I should say, rather, a good amount of them are not – you know, legacy or, you know, modern or, you know, especially legacy because they're older legacy staples. These, this is just, you know, uh, I'm going to use one, an example very recently, King Suleiman, which randomly is gone from the internet uh, on vendors. Uh, this is not a legacy staple. It's, it's directly uh, a, this old school format uh, card. And, it's just gone. From a purely financial perspective, does it make sense to just buy random old cards? <laughs> like, should we just be buying anything that seems somewhat playable from Legends because it's probably going to double in price sometime in the next few months? Like, I mean, is that, is that the point we're at now? I mean, it, unfortunately, it might be. I mean, it really, I mean... As soon as people talk about this over social media, again, I'm not going to name names, but I mean, I think we just have to be a little responsible. I mean, as people who are interested in the financial uh, aspect of this game, you talk about a card on, on this list, like a King Suleiman, all someone has to do is buy, you know, four copies of this card on TCG player or whatever other vendor. And that card is gone. I mean, there is, it's very hard to track these cards down. And, you know, whether this format's fun or not, or whether this is just a phase, I mean, I'm hoping it is, um, the fact remains is that whether, you know, it, it continues on, the cards are still very hard to track down. I mean, Chains of Mephistopheles, I mean, all these cards are just, you know, has Haziz on Tamar, uh, you know, these cards are still going to be scarce. So, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's messed up. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to start throwing darts at the reserved list because, you know, I want to just kind of not be that person. I mean, this is just me personally to kind of just start buying reserved list cards and corner the market on them. I mean, we saw this uh, quite some time ago with tiny leaders uh, when a reserved list card did come up in the card of uh, cards like Ragnar and stuff like that, that are in legends and are now gone. But, you know, I'm not going to start, throwing darts and, you know, buy out, you know, wormwood tree folk just because <laughs> it's on the <laughs> reserve list, you know, but, you know, that's just me. Other people, you know, look through the reserve list, see this old school thing, you know, look up on, you know, online vendors, see that there's not a lot of them and that's it. I mean, it, it's a, it's very concerning. 
is there any chance that this could maybe somehow force Wizards' hand to do something about the lack of supply of, like, pre-unlimited cards? I don't think they really care. No. <laughs> I think you guys are looking at this the wrong way. Like, these are collectibles. I mean, theoretically, you can play with them, but it's like, I don't know, buying, like, a, a Michael Jordan-signed basketball. Right. Like, yeah, you can bring it to the park and play with it, but... That's not what its purpose was, right? Like, at this point, a lot of these cards are collectibles. So I can understand why people would pay, you know, some random arbitrary amount for them. Like, it's their nostalgia and their value. So if you're trying to speculate on these cards, it's it's very hard, right? Because right. with collectibles, you don't know how much someone's willing to pay, right? If you find the wrong person, they'll pay $5. If you pay the right person, they'll pay 5000 Right. And in the collectibles market, like it's it goes it's like there's a lot of variance depending on who you're selling to. And I would put these cards there. Right. Like I would pay, you know, I looked at King Suleiman. I'm like, that's a sweet card. You know, I would pay twenty dollars for it because it looks sweet and it's fun. But is it a twenty dollar card like I view, you know, a, a modern staple or legacy staple? Like, no. Right. It's more like a signed collectible from my childhood or something. And it invokes warm, fuzzy feelings for me, right? So I would look at a lot of these cards like that. So speculating on that is going to be pretty hard because you need to, A, you know, find the right card, and then, B, find the right person to sell it to. Yeah. And the right person to sell it to is actually very difficult for things like this. Yeah. And I, 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 th- I just wanted to go off what you said, Richard. And there are people that kind of, I guess they, like, kind of self-govern this – uh old school market. And, and I, and I see this on social media a lot and you know, it gets very heated uh, once these cards start getting talked about. And when, you know, people from the finance community start looking at these cards, uh, there's a very, very big, like, you know, pushback and, you know, Richard's right. Just because, you know, storm world or King Suleiman or something like that is spiking, to $75 or something like that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to pay $75 for a King Suleiman. So it's just very weird, this, this format, because again, like Richard said, you know, are they going to pay $75 for a King Suleiman to play this old school mark, uh, uh, format? Maybe, you know, if that's really what they want to do, or are they going to spend $75 on modern staples? And that seems a little more likely. And well, the thing is though, I'm not even thinking so much as speculating, but, if you got some money sitting around that you just want to let sit for five years, is buying a complete set of legends or Arabian nights, is that just like the best place you can put that money? If you are under the impression that the reserve list is set in stone, it's not going anywhere. And that these are collectibles. It doesn't matter if people are going to play these cards. Isn't that just like a great, financial decision to just have a set sitting around assuming you have the money to invest isn't this uh, like investing in beanie babies <laughs> or, 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 or you, guarantees that magic will be around right in you you brought up like you know sports collectibles and stuff like that and I, I i'm going back to what you said richard it's kind of the sports collectible thing and how that market kind of crashed so yeah i mean it seems like a good idea you know, as long as Magic's around, I mean, they're not going to reprint, like, a lot of this Arabian Nights or Legend stuff. So it, it could be a good, sound financial investment. It's just, 
you know, who are you going to find that's going to actually purchase a whole Arabian Nights set? I think there's kind of a very small percentage of those, you know, people looking for this collectible kind of stuff. So I, I don't know. I mean, for me, I mean, I guess I it's safe, that's for sure, as long as Magic's around. I mean, but... the other side of things is that movie's coming out. Like, it's apparently not just a movie, but a f- series of movies. And there's been some articles saying that this is going to drive Magic into the mainstream and guarantee that Magic is a thriving game for the next decade because it's going to be the next X-Men or whatever superhero franchise. Like, on the other hand, couldn't King Suleiman be like $500 five years from now? (laughs) I mean, you're you're hitting the wrong people, right? The people that get hooked up, you know, hooked on the new movie and stuff, they're not going to care for a card printed 20 years ago that makes no sense and sucks. Right? It's really like the 30-year-old yeah. guy that, like, oh, I remember one time I killed a Juzam the Jin with this thing, right? It was so <laughs> sweet, right? Like, it's that guy that's going to buy your card, right? Right. So, yeah, but maybe – I don't know. I think it players. will increase. If magic is still around, it will increase. But I think that's a risky proposition, right? Like, this card that no one plays and is terrible, and if you find someone who plays this old format, which may or may not exist in a bit – you know, may buy it. Like, it's, there's a lot of variables here, right? Like, what if, what if the Juzam Jin is out of the old school format legacy, right? Format uh, banned. Yeah, it's a ban hammer. It's, it's, yeah, I mean that that can happen, and that's why it's kind really of risky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of why I've been downplaying it, you know. And I try to be like responsible, I guess, when it comes to the reserve list in particular, because I, I think that's just kind of I'm going to use the term scummy to be like throwing darts at the reserve list and just start buying this stuff out. And again, like Richard said, yeah, maybe it spikes to like $500 or whatever, but really who's going to pay like $500 for King Suleiman? There's, there's not that There's not going to be that many people out there willing to pay the new price just to pay, you know, even just to play this format, which may or may not be, you know, as popular as it is right now or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that it's a slam dunk investment. It just came across my mind that we've seen these cards go up and up so much over the past yeah. five or ten years that maybe there's still potential left there. Like, maybe we're not at the top of the market yet. So, I don't know. I mean, I I wouldn't do it personally. For me, buying complete sets of alpha or beta is way beyond what I have to invest in for five years in magic cards. But there's got to be some people out there that are considering that the people that are sitting on a hundred sealed boxes of the original Zendikar or whatever. Right. And and when you think about it, I mean, Richard's right. I mean, this kind of thing is going to happen when there's hype around a format, whatever. And again, maybe it's just a phase the, the the crux of you know what I'm saying and why I try to downplay it is it, it is a little concerning because these cards are on the reserve list. I mean, Tiny Leaders was different. It was kind of spiking these random like Tiny Leader Generals or whatever, but they weren't really always on the reserve list, and all the cards weren't really always on the reserve, reserve list. This has a lot more overlap, but I mean, when you think about it, I mean, King Suleiman, as of, you know, before these wacky buyouts, I mean was seven bucks. I mean, for an Arabian Nights card that came out, you know, X years ago, all this time was still only really $7. So, 
I don't know. I mean, again, you're going to have – it's going to be that a varying degree of people that are going to pay a new, you know, 50 or whatever some odd dollars for a King Suleiman. So, yeah, I, but I, I agree, Seth. I mean, maybe it might be getting to that point. I don't know, but I just – I don't know. I mean, I'm going to side with Richard and say it's that kind of – these cards are like collectibles and – there is kind of a very small market for that, and maybe you're not going to find that many people willing to pay X new, you know, inflated price for really a card that's not really relevant. Yeah, and just one final point. Like, a lot of people are trying to compare Magic to the uh, the comic book bubble, and yeah. the, the, the one point that they always make that's Magic saving grace is that you can play with the cards, and that... Uh, you know, gives them value, and that mm-hmm. is that makes it different from the comic uh, book bubble. King Suleiman is not a playable card, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it pushes him further to the comic book side. So that's why I'd be a bit leery about it. But uh, you know, if for some reason he is playable and old school magic takes off, then you know it'd be much safer. But the format is still young and. I, I can't imagine, like, you really got to pull, like, new Magic players, like the guy that just started uh, at Innistrad or the girl that just started at Return to Ravnica and asked them, hey, do you want to play with these terribly underpowered cards from 1955? <laughs> Does this interest you? Right. <laughs> and if everyone and, says yes, then I'm like, okay, this has potential, right? But Well, yeah, and then you have to follow up with the question of, well, here's a couple cards like King Suleiman that are $75. Do you still want to play this format? Like... You know, there there has to be that interest, like, past the, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, again, you could go out and buy, like, a bunch of Wormwood Tree folks. It's probably not going to do anything, so I don't know. Dude, but this card, it sounds like I'm plugging this card, but this card is legitimately sweet. <laughs> it's like a two-mana 1-1, <laughs> one, one, which is, like, not that bad. You can tap it to kill Nefreet or Dijin. It has sweet art, and it has, like, a quote from the Quran. So, like, yeah. before they had, like, they had quotes from real life, and they did yeah, everything, yeah. right? So I'm like, it's so sweet. <laughs> this card is actually pretty sweet, but... And I guess kills one of the Unfortunately, it's more... too expensive for me to afford now, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I okay. guess it's sweet tech against all those um, serendib, however you pronounce it. Hey, those are the Tarmogoyers of the day, okay? That's actually yeah. pretty good. <laughs> yeah, those are your yeah. beaters. You can't bolt those gyms, okay? <laughs> and what's the other one? What's the green one? That's really good, too, right? Serendib Ifrit. That's the green one. The one, the one that's blue that was printed green. There's like a three to cast three four flyer or something. Right, that's that, that one. That was the was... wrong color border. <laughs> oh, right, but what's Ur- what's the Urnam? Right, Urnam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 that yeah, one's yeah, pretty yeah. good too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty big card for you know a four mana four five in in uh, back in those days it was pretty big. Those would be like still respectable in today's. <laughs> today's metagame so yeah all right so um yeah uh any kind of final thoughts yeah i don't know seth it's it's crazy i i kind of try to stay away from that whole thing yeah i agree it is crazy and i don't understand it but glad to get your guys opinions on it yeah all right so final thoughts on anything i think it was a good cast we covered everything yeah i think next week we get commander spoilers we do so Stay tuned for that. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sure everyone's just going to be looking at what's getting reprinted, but 
<laughs> we are going to get some cool commander cards, I guess, for people Monday, out there. Who enemy fetch lands. What? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That would solve. Wizards, like, we don't care. <laughs> Let's go. I guess. I guess they listened to that one episode we put out like three months ago about <laughs> you should put them in this product so they don't have to go through standard. <laughs> so I guess we could take credit for that. <laughs> Until next time, this is the crew signing out. Uh, we will do this next week.